Well, a tough text. Sure. When I was a kid, we went to church, like some of you might have, and my favorite part of church was the benediction. Amen. Yes. Yeah. Come on. The church where I went to, the benediction was a sung version of Jude 24 and 25. Now unto him who is able to keep. Able. Come on. Keep going. There it is. Up there. Now, for me, it was my favorite part because it was the anthem for morning tea. All right? Now, when it got to the point of the benediction, the service for, you know, say a 10, 11-year-old boy had already gone for an incredibly large amount of time. The pace at which this benediction was sung was so tremendously slow (laughs) that normally what I would try and do to keep myself entertained was to see how many times I can actually say it in my head by the time my record was six, just for those who want to give it a go at some point. But as soon as it hit the word, Amen. And it's the slowest Amen in the world, isn't it? You know? As soon as it went, Men, boom, I was off, as was every other child in the place. Straight to morning tea, the mint slice, the jelly slice, the caramel slice, the Tim Tams, the cordial, the sugar. This particular part of church was amazing for me, but for all the wrong reasons. When we think about the way in which we approach our text for today, the reason why I want us to start here is because it helps to give us a little bit of shape, a little bit of access and entry into this text from Revelation. Particularly those words, glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and forever, which apply to God. What we see, we judge and we give worth to. Yes? We see beauty, we say it's beautiful. We see an extraordinary act, we say it's incredible. We see something horrific, we say it's terrible. We see the glory of God revealed in countless ways and we say... It is majestic. Furthermore, to have power provides the means for using authority in beneficial ways. But who benefits is the measure of how power is maintained and why authority is used. The power God has and the authority it reveals points to the truth that all people are graciously invited to benefit in an extraordinary way from living abundantly in God's life. I want you to try and hold as much of that as possible as we dive into the text for today. That glory and majesty, what we see, what we say about it. That power is what we have, authority is how we use it. Now, as soon as we hit the amen in the book of Jude, rather than zooming off to lunch in our case, we then go straight into Revelation. And moving into the atmosphere of Revelation from Jude and indeed the rest of Scripture is a bit like the scene in Harry Potter when they go from platform number nine to platform number nine and three quarters. There is something fantastically apocalyptic 
that goes on when we hit Revelation. The Gordon Fee says this, instead of narratives, arguments, or plain statements of fact, the Revelation is full of angels, trumpets, and earthquakes of strange beasts, dragons, and bottomless pits. It is tough, if not impossible, to make sense of this particular chapter just by itself. Context is absolutely key when it comes to dealing with tough texts. You've heard that before. It won't be the last time you hear it. Chapter 17 sits along with chapter 18, 19, 20, and part of 22. We have to hold all of those together in order to make sense of what is going on here. It is not a piece that sits by itself. Now, there's no way I'm going to be able to cover everything in all of those chapters in, you know, the three hours that we've got left, or thereabouts. But I want to encourage you, getting into this text isn't just the domain of scholars, you can do it as well. So I want to, I'll give you a, a few access points, but I'd encourage you to go and check it out for yourself and look in particular at the contrasts that are being made. Because John brilliantly sets up a contrast between the glory, the majesty, the power and the authority of Rome and that of the Almighty God. And it's more than just political posturing on John's behalf. John is setting up a classic contrast where he is apocalyptically pointing to the glory, majesty, power and authority of God over Rome. Now, when we engage in this text and there is reference to the great whore, for some, that's a bit jarring, but the language is meant to be jarring. It's meant to be provocative. It is meant to make a very, very significant point. And it is unmistakable that the great whore is pointing to Rome. Some of the apocalyptic clues that refer to Rome are as follows. In Revelation 17.1, it talks about who is seated on many waters. That's a reference to the expanse of the empire. At the end of the chapter, it talks about the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. But if that's not enough, John makes it really clear in Revelation 17.9. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Has anyone ever been to Rome? Yeah? Okay, these days, you don't get as good a feel for the seven hills that Rome was built on. Okay, because it's all built. But way back in the day, the seven hills were where the tribes, in a sense, established themselves. And in between, the valleys, well, they had water and the things that valleys have in them. Once they were drained, the city then really came alive because it was in the valleys where the trading and the markets happened and, and whatnot, and people came down from the different hills and they were able to not be seven, but one. Uh, a quick Google search will uh, bring up that that's the seven hills of Rome there. And when you do go to Rome, you do get a sense of, of the general sort of feel that it is undulating and that there indeed are seven hills there. The seven hills are all within the boundary of the city of Rome. So if you think back in the day when this was written, the seven hills were very clearly a descriptor of Rome. It was unmistakable. Now, Rome was also known as the eternal city. All who inhabited Rome believed the city was so glorious 
so majestic, so full of power and dominion that it would last forever. And this is where the impact of the contrast starts to be felt. We read in uh, Revelation 17:1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on many waters. This is why the context is not just in chapter 17, but a number of chapters, because in Revelation 21:9 it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, sound familiar? Of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. See the contrast between the great whore and the bride. It's unmistakable. The bride is the holy city, the true eternal city, which is the new Jerusalem. Rome knows nothing of eternity because from the eternal vantage point of the almighty God, things look very, very different. And this is reflected in the locales from which the two contrasting visions happen. Hear this. So in, in Revelation 17, 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into where? A wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. But in Revelation 21, 10, the contrast comes in. And in the spirit, he carried me away to where? A great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The great high mountain is such a strong motif through scripture. It means a holy place. So from that holy place, John is able to see the vision of the new holy eternal city coming down from heaven. The wilderness, however, is often referred to as a place of isolation, of desolation. The contrast there is stark between the two. And then one final contrast, and there's plenty more, so you can go and check them out for yourselves. How does it all end up for these two cities? In Revelation 18, 9 and 10, And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And in contrast, we see the true eternal city in the following way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So overwhelmingly, the comparisons between the two cities points to the glory, the majesty, the power, and the authority of God as reflected in the New Jerusalem. But it's anything but an arrogant revelation of God's superiority manifest in an action of the new doing away with the old. John's revelation is not a manifesto for an upgraded world at the expense of the other. Rather, it is clearly a contrast that reveals the work of God's salvation. We read, For our purposes, 
It is important to remember that John's vision is not merely about salvation from the world and its injustices. It is also about salvation of the world, including the redemption of the earth and the material cosmos itself. This is where we can start to personally get some traction with the text. Because salvation isn't just about trying to deliver us from this stinky, festering world. It is about the redemption and the reconciling that happens within us in this world. Because you know what? There's a little bit of Rome in all of us, isn't there? There's a little bit of Rome in all of us. We can all see things in this life that cause us to say, especially through our actions, that they are of greater worth than what God can give. Essentially, we can give worth to that which fulfills and benefits our desires. The more freedom we have to do this, the greater the trap can be. And the action of giving worth is worship. Now, if we think about some of uh, the words and actions that we do and say that we might be ashamed of, normally it's because they are self-seeking, that we serve to benefit ourselves, even if it's at the expense of others. And it normally tracks back to what we see as important and worthwhile. I'm not going to go through an extensive list of examples because you've probably got your own, as I do. But when something starts off with, it's worth everything to me that people see me as, and then you go to Facebook and you look at the example of that, people putting their best life, maybe even a different life forward so that people can see them in a particular way so that they can therefore say, wow, your life's incredible. What about you're only worth something to me because you satisfy my need for... Have we ever just used someone to satisfy a need that we have, even if it's at the expense of another? What about when our actions say to other people, don't you know who I am? Don't you know how important I am? A friend of mine is in a band, and uh, this is an example of this. And uh, we went to a concert, you know, of theirs, and uh, their names on the front of the theatre. They'd left tickets for us at the the ticket office and we'd called up for dinner beforehand. So we were walking back from dinner, we went to the ticket office, and the posters for the band are everywhere, all around the foyer, all in the ticket box. And we went up to the young lady that was in the ticket box, and old mate's right next to me. So you can see him, you can see him on all around. The poor lady's in the ticket office there and she's clearly not had the best of days. And she's sitting there and I said, hi, my name's Nigel Rogers, I've got some tickets on the, on the door here and she sort of slowly went through, you know, and had a look and she's like, here they are. And I thought, I'll lighten the mood a little bit. I said, yeah, I'm not really into this band, they're not, they're not much good, are they? And she's like, nah, I don't like them. <laughs> and he's standing right there. So even if you think you're someone... Your worth is not found in who other people might think you are necessarily, even if you're in a relatively well-known band. 
If something or someone has great worth in our life, we will give our time, money, our effort, our emotions and our thoughts to it. I want you just to sit with that for a second. If something or someone has great worth in our life, we will give our time, our money, our effort, our emotions and our thoughts to it. What is of great worth in your life? What do you give your time, your money, your effort, your emotions and your thoughts to? The worship of God, seeing God's worth and His glory, His majesty, His power and authority is the greatest strategy that we have to live lives transformed by God. Because it helps to expose the things that are of worth to God and the things that have no worth at all to God. Because worship is a choice. And we all choose to worship something and or someone, every single one of us. The contrast in Revelation 17 all the way through into 22 points to the reality that there are certain things that God does not give worth to. He doesn't give worth to much of what is happening in Rome. The common element in all these things is that they draw people away from relationships and a relationship particularly in life with God. God's biggest beef with Rome was that so much of what happened there was drawing the people away from God into all the other things that have no worth in life. So where do we finish with all of this? Because in some senses, it's just the beginning. In Revelation 18.4, there is a command, there is a call by God. And it's these words, come out of her, come away from her, is what he says. The allure of the, the great whore or Rome is that it promises everything to the people. It promises power, it promises authority, it promises glory and delivers nothing. Temptations in this life, the things that we are prepared to put worth into, often come from a place where we think that based on the promises that we see that they might make to us, that it's worth investing into. But how many things in life have you experienced where they promise everything and deliver nothing? The promise of pleasure, the promise of power, the promise of happiness, the promise of belonging, and it delivers nothing. That is the great trap of the whore and the beast. The promise of everything and the delivering of nothing and the call of God is to come out of that place. Come out of the empty promises and ground yourself in the only one who will make the promises that allows you to be able to live a life where fulfillment will come because the promises themselves are fulfilled. When Jesus said to the disciples, come, follow me. Why would they have left everything? Because they knew that in Jesus and Jesus alone, here was someone who promised and could fulfill the promises, particularly the promise in the fulfillment and the fullness of life. 
You know, these words were once a joke to me. They were the anthem for morning tea. Now they're an anthem for worship, as they were intended to be in my life. Because they point to the only one who can honestly and truly be of any worth to anyone. I want to invite you to say these words with me as we finish. Let's say it together. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.